Hi there, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled, As in the Ancient Days. If I told you there was a great treasure right beneath you in the earth and then gave you a shovel, would you start digging for it? Well, why is it that we give up toiling and laboring to see God glorified in this generation just because we don't see it immediately? Is not His glory a surpassingly great treasure to be sought? Please, we'd love for you to contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Eric Ludi. Isaiah 51.9 Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. The arm of God in Scripture is the means by which God accomplishes his exploits and he does his wonders. And for whatever reason, we can relate to this Scripture in our modern day. We can read the Bible but we don't necessarily see the Bible evidenced in our generation. In other words, we can believe it, that it happened then, but we don't quite know how to deal with the discrepancy between the fact that it happened then and we don't see it happening today, which is where all the newfangled doctrines come from, to try and explain away the fact that God ever intended to be God in our generation. Oh, that has ceased. Oh, we don't need that anymore. We have the completed canon of Scripture. You take the completed canon, I want the completed Christ made alive and flesh within his saints. If we do not see the outflow of the life and the power of God in the church, all we have is a dead religion. We are not interested in just speaking truth, we are interested in living truth. And there is a discrepancy that will take place between the knowing about something and the living it. And that difference is the power of Almighty God. And so we as the church of Jesus Christ cry out, Awake! Awake, O arm of the Lord! Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. If the arm of God does not awaken in our generation, we will be no different than the generation before us and the generation before that. We are on a downward spiral and decline, and truth is falling in the streets, and there is an erosion that is taking place at a faster level in a faster degree than at any time that I know I have been alive. I've been alive 40 years and I see an ever-increasing diminishment of truth in our generation. And I'm seeing behind the scenes, by the way. I'm seeing in the publishing industry. I'm seeing in the music industry. I see behind of what's taking place. It's not pretty. But however, I see something taking place here. And I know if it's taking place here, I know it's taking place in other places. God doesn't just isolate his work. He's at work, and oftentimes it's under the banner of obscurity. NBC News doesn't notice it. Fox News doesn't care about it. CNN isn't on the prowl trying to figure out what's taking place. God has a work that he's doing, and he is stirring the hearts of his saints to say, come back to me. Come back to me and believe once again as little children. What would happen if we had the faith of little children again, and we took the word of God and we say, I, for one, believe it. But you haven't seen it. I believe it. And I believe that God will do the impossible if we simply believe. Will we once again allow God to return us to the simple word of truth and say, if he said it, we can take it to the bank? Well, that's what this message is about. As in the ancient of days. The lessons from yesteryear. Here's a story that uh, 
we've been going through as a staff quite often lately and referring to because we've been looking at James 5, for instance, where James 5 is talking about if anyone is sick, let him come unto the elders and the elders will pray over him and they will anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of the faith will save the sick. You know, it's an odd statement. It doesn't mean it's hard to understand. It's very easy to understand. It just says it straight out. You know, do this, the prayer of faith will save the sick. However, once again, we have a discrepancy between what the Word of God is saying and what we oftentimes are experiencing in our modern generation of Christianity. So we've been wrestling as a staff to break through something, to say why is the discrepancy there? Because we know what God said and we know that God will always do rightly, and we know that God cannot lie, and when he's promised, he is legally bound. Not just legally, though. He delights to perform his word. So what is hindering us in this generation? So some of the questions that have come out as we've been dealing with James 5 is, why do you need to come unto the elders? doesn't even make sense. If, you, if someone was struggling with sin in here, we don't tell you to go to the elders, we tell you to go to Jesus. Who's the physician? Who's the healer? The elders? No. Jesus. So why in the world are we told in the book of James to go to the elders? Why isn't it just belief in Jesus that would heal the sick? Well, you have plenty of other evidence in the New Testament that it is belief in Jesus that heals the sick. Okay? So just, I'm not going to go into this today. But we've been studying this in great depth because the way you determine doctrine is from the complete harmonics of Scripture. You don't just take one Scripture and interpret it separately. You have to interpret it inside of its context and inside all 66 books. Jesus is the healer. However, we've linked it with Mark 2, and you'll see a parallel here. There are those that can't get to Jesus because there is a throng that surrounds him. And in Mark 2, we see Jesus inside a house, and no one can get in. I mean, he's literally just surrounded, and he's teaching the word, but no one can get to him. And there's a paraplegic man. It's a man who suffers from the palsy, and he cannot carry himself to Jesus. And so four men of faith pick him up and bring him to the house, but they can't get in. And so they climb to the top of the roof, And I want to read what takes place. It's a very interesting story. So in Mark 2, And again he entered into Capernaum, speaking of Jesus, after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. So four men are carrying this man. And when they could not come near unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason you these things in your heart? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he says to the sick of the palsy, 
I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, We never sought on this fashion. A great thing has occurred. But somehow, this paraplegic man had to reach the feet of Jesus. You know, it's interesting, just as a side comment on this, the Jews didn't struggle with the fact that God could heal. They struggled with the fact that God could forgive sins. Because, in the Jewish culture, how were sins dealt with? Through the blood of bulls and goats. Who is this guy to come down and just forgive sins as if he has the power to do such a thing? You know what's funny is we're the exact opposite. We as the church of Jesus Christ don't really struggle with the fact that Jesus can forgive sins. Our issue is, what? You actually think he could heal? Isn't that a funny thing? We're backwards. It's just a funny thing just to observe and and notate in our culture. However, this man who was sick of the palsy could not get to Jesus. I don't know if that sounds like any of you in here. But there's some of us that are suffering from this discrepancy, this distance that we feel, and we do not know how to cross that barrier. There is a roof, and say we're even lifted up under the roof, and the church of Jesus Christ lifts us up and sets us down. And we're like, you know what? I'm still not there. I need to get to the feet of Jesus. How do we get there? The reason I'm choosing this story to start out with is because a roof or a ceiling is something that I think enunciates almost perfectly what we feel in our spiritual life. Now, most of us would say that when we pray, we feel like there is a tile ceiling above our head. And our prayers don't seem to get out. They don't seem to get through and to reach the throne of grace. Now, what we see in Mark 2 is we see the inverse of that. We see us being on the roof and Jesus in the house. So however you want to picture this, there's still a barrier. A tile roof that is a barricade between us and our answer. Most of us aren't struggling with the fact that Jesus can do mighty works in our life. We just don't know how to get to his feet. We don't know how to get our prayers heard. And so that's why when you look at James 5 and it says, If anyone is sick among you, may he come unto the elders. I always look at that as the four that will bear you up. They're not the ones that heal you. But they will carry the paraplegic man and break up the roof. Breaking up the roof. Now, look at this. Breaking up the roof. Now, I've emboldened and made large certain words in this that I want just to stand out to you as we move forward here. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. Now, most of us don't look at this as a form of prayer, as a form of intercession. I would like to link this with the prayer of faith shall heal the sick. This is the act of the body of Christ laboring on the part of those that are palsied and paralyzed in our generation, which unfortunately right now is most of us. We all have the desire There's something that even brought you here today. And you might have been dragged here today. That's a possibility. But there's also something that is bringing you into this environment. And by the way, I don't dilute things. And so I bring things forcefully. And for some reason, people keep coming back here. From all over the country, people are coming from all over the world. Speak it. Speak it straight to me. I need to know how this roof is broken up. 
I'm tired of being outside the throng. I want to be where Jesus is. If you want to be where Jesus is, it's the body of Christ that has tasted of his grace, that has been set free, that has been already laid at his feet, that now become the eldership around you that will bear you up in prayer and carry you unto his feet. We have a job to do as the church of Jesus Christ. We have a dying generation out there. One of our summary points at at Ellerslie is this. We must be made strong. Not just so that we're strong. That's not God's great agenda, just that we be made strong, even though he really wants us to be made strong. He makes us strong in order that we might be spent. He makes us strong in order that we might be a bearer up of those with the palsy. So that we are strong to intercede and to stand for them and to carry them up to the roof. To break up the roof that they can't break up. And then drop them down to the feet of Jesus. Who is the rescuer? It's Jesus. But we participate in this process. We must know our role. God is making us strong and then we submit back our body and say, God, show me what you want to do. And it was the the faith of these four that literally brought them to Jesus that caused the effect. You have faith and you have confidence in your Jesus. Be prepared to be made strong to start breaking up the roof in our generation because we have an entire church that needs to be let down to the feet of Jesus that they would taste and see how truly good he is before it's too late and they reject the whole thing altogether. There are people that are limping through their Christian lives right now, going to church every week, and they still can't figure out why it's so impressive. What's so good about this? There's really nothing about it that's so special. If you have a Christianity that doesn't have anything special in it, you probably don't yet have Christianity. Because Christianity is very, very special. It changes you. It sets you free. It gives you a new mind, a new heart. It delivers you from the power of the flesh and the old man. And no longer are you caught in the cycle of sin and those sinful patterns. You can live now. You can give. No, no longer you just issue after issue in your own life, stuck in that cycle of selfishness, going, oh, woe is me. Suddenly you forget about yourself. You know, there's nothing better than forgetting about yourself. I know that sounds a little dangerous because who's going to think of you then? God will. You can forget about yourself and suddenly you're like, oh, them. Oh, how about them? Hey, there's someone that needs to be born up. You are all about those around you. Suddenly life works. The kingdom of heaven begins to spread like wildfire throughout this age. Awake, awake, O oh arm of the Lord. The tile ceiling over the American church. Now, I would propose that there are countries right now Usually they're a little worse off than we are in America. But there are countries around the world that don't have the same tile roof over their head right now. And there's an easier access to the feet of Jesus. I can't quite explain it. I've actually spent years praying about this very thing. Because I see what happens in other countries and I see the accessibility unto God. And it's at a greater level. It's like there's a greater accessibility. And yet in America, it almost seems like we have a five-layer tile roof. And so some of us have been getting up on the tile roof and we've been peeling it back. And we're getting a little disheartened because we just peeled off an entire layer of tile, which is hard work, by the way. And it seems like there's another layer still waiting for us. I don't know what's going on in our country spiritually. All I know is we're not healthy. But we 
are presuming health because our churches are big. That doesn't necessarily mean health. When God defines health, he shows forth fruit. And he says, this is how you will know that my body is functioning as it ought. It is outward. It is giving. It is loving. It is glorifying to Jesus Christ. Self has no place there. It isn't about celebrities. It isn't about individuals. It is about Jesus Christ. And it is always only about Jesus Christ. So I'm going to say that we have a tile ceiling over the American church. Now here's, here's what we could battle with. There are some American leaders that I even highly respect that have left America. Because they say the expiration date of America has passed. God gave it. It's shot. We took the truth of God and flushed it down the drain. And now we live for self. You know what? I can't argue that. However, I have a burden for the church here in America. And here's the way I'm headed. If you want to head there with me, I ask you to join me. And that is, I see, I don't care how many layers to this tile roof there are. In other words, if we break through three of them as a congregation and we find out there's still ten more, we go after ten more. Somehow, some way, we need to get this generation of Christians and the church of Jesus Christ to that feet again of, of our Savior. We must see, we must behold before it's too late. So let's start breaking up the roof. I, this entire message is about breaking up the roof. Okay, so that is merely a premise of why we need this message. Because we need something hearty and we need something bold to be able to go after and persist layer after layer until we once again can find an awakening within the church of Jesus Christ today, even in America. As bewildering as that would seem, even here. Famous quote from Rachel, the wife of Jacob, the mother of Joseph. Give me children or I die. Most of us can't really relate to this. I mean, there's probably some women in here that have uh, struggled with fertility that can understand this at some level. But this is an agony of soul, and I'm going to build on this. There's an agony of soul that we'll see revealed throughout Scripture, and it's tied in with something known as barrenness. Fruitlessness of the womb. When you are showing a fruitlessness of the womb, and you cannot conceive and bear a child, especially in the Hebrew culture, the Oriental culture, this was a very weighty thing for women. And you have to realize Rachel's sister Leah was very fruitful. She did not struggle at all with conceiving of children. And poor Rachel, Zippo, Zilch, she could not conceive. This is extraordinary because you, you look at the history of, the, of Israel, the history of the Hebrew nation, and you see this tale, and it's the tale of a seed. And so you start out in the Garden of Eden with, uh, with Eve, and it says the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Well, do you think the serpent's too excited about that? So what's he hunting down for ages and generations? The seed. He is looking to wipe out the seed. And if he can't stop the seed, which he didn't, by the way, because the seed is Jesus. The seed was born. And now guess what? The church of Jesus Christ represents the implantation of that same seed inside of us. And Satan has been out to destroy that seed from the beginning. Well, guess what he's still out to destroy? That seed, which is now in you. Welcome to Christianity. 
Well, I don't know what I, no one told me that when I took on the seed. Well, I just did. Give me children or I die. If we are fruitless in our Christianity, it should create such an agony in our souls. And ironically, it doesn't. You know that we are not bearing spiritual children today in American Christianity? We are barren. We are not fertile. God, it says, is the one that opens and closes the womb. In other words, there's only one that can make you spiritually fruitful. And it happens to be God. But if you don't recognize how bad it is to be barren spiritually, you will not begin to echo Rachel's cry. Give me children or I die. Until that becomes your prayer, God needs to do some work in your heart. Here's the 21st century church. This is my proposal. Give us the stuff of old or we die. Whatever was back then, whatever those Christians had, whatever those believers had, please give us the stuff of the ancient days or we die. If you aren't feeling that, you must come to life. You must be resurrected. You are meant to carry and house the very heart, the very grief, the very burden of God. And this is his burden. Will anyone see the glory of God in this generation? Will they behold? Will they bow down and serve the living God in this generation? The agony of barrenness. The beginnings of persistent prayer. The barren woman is shamed by her fruitlessness and cries out in anguish of soul. The barren woman is moved to prayer to cover her shame of fruitlessness. Begging God night and day for life to form within her. The barren woman is supernaturally aided through prayer to bear, not a mere human, but a mighty man, a prevailing hero of Israel. What do we see? It's very interesting. But God is establishing a people known as Israel. And Abraham has Sarah, or Sarai. And she's barren. Well, that's not a very good choice on God's part. Okay? It's like, God... You know, if you're going to kick this thing off with a bang, why don't you pick a very uh, fertile woman here, okay? I mean, what's the deal with Sarah? That was not very smart on your behalf. Now, you need to realize God does everything purposely. He knows exactly what he's doing. You see, barrenness is the soil in which God grows a desperation and the sense of need. If everything came easy, easy to you spiritually, do you know that you would have no dependence upon God? And so you would find your prayer life diminishing. Instead, what you probably feel is a barrenness. Some of you in here have felt it. Some of the students all semester, it's just like, okay, I, I want that. I want that. But you cannot produce that. You could want a child as a woman, but that doesn't mean you have a child in your womb. It's not just because you want it that you have it. If you are barren for any season of your life as a woman and you are craving and desiring that child within, it's hard to even get your mind on anything else. It's consuming. And guess what it does? It increases your prayer life. Suddenly, you know that you can't do it. And so you turn to God. Say, God, you are the one that opens the womb. Please open mine. Listen to this. Sarah isn't just how it started off, okay? God has Abraham's wife as Sarah. She's barren until 90 years of age. And then she gives birth to Isaac. 
one of the most important men in all of history, came out of barrenness. I want you to realize this. You're going to see the pattern here, that out of barrenness came mighty heroes. Mighty heroes. Rebecca, who's the wife of Isaac, she's barren. So we start with Sarah, and then guess what? God hand-selects Rebecca for Isaac. And once again, he doesn't choose very well. Uh, God, you picked a barren one again, okay? You know, if I'm your counsel in heaven, I would you know, help you out here, okay? Why don't you check and see if they're barren before you match them up with your men? Okay, God knows exactly what he's doing. Once again, Rebecca is barren. And then after Isaac's prayer, she begets twins, Esau and Jacob, also known as Israel. Her son was Israel. This is no small thing. Then Rachel, okay, this is the third in a row now. Jacob marries Rachel, and she's barren. And then begets Joseph, who delivered the nation of Israel. Manoah's wife was barren, and then she begets Samson, another deliverer of the nation. Hannah was barren, and then has Samuel, a prophet of Israel. Ruth, barren and widowed, finds mercy and begets Obed, who begets Jesse, the father of David, of whose line is Jesus Christ. And Elizabeth, elderly and unable to bear children after the natural, begets John the Baptist, of whom Jesus said there was no greater prophet born of women. Okay, you getting the idea? When there is barrenness, don't get upset. Don't get frustrated. Don't get mad at God. This is the greatest opportunity. Because God brings forth the mightiest of fruit out of those that recognize their need for it. You see, if fruit was just coming naturally to you right now, if that ceiling maybe was uncovered and you were born in a generation where it was very easy access to Jesus Christ and to see his promises fulfilled, you wouldn't have to wrestle to get them in this generation. But we represent a generation that if we press through, if we break through that roof, We are going to appreciate every inch of the presence of God that we discover. Because we know what it's like to be a barren church. Listen to Leonard Ravenhill on that subject. If shame of childlessness had not subdued these women, what mighty men would have been lost? Has the shame of childlessness subdued you? Have you been subdued by the fact that, God, this stinks? (laughs) My life is not what the Bible says it ought to be. I am not showing forth your love, your joy, your peace, your patience, your kindness, your goodness, your faithfulness, your gentleness, and your self-control. I'm not demonstrating the mighty outworking of God in me. I read what Paul said, and I'm not seeing it in me. Father, Please open my spiritual womb that I would bear the fruit of the life of the king in and through my life. Note, are we shamed over our childlessness? Do we weep in the anguish and shame of our ministries that conceive not the new life and new birth in others? Are we not grieved over the impotence, our infertility, our inability to beget children in the faith? Are we not yet fed up with our weakness to pray and see liberty won and captives set free? Are we not yet sickened that this world sees nothing marvelous or powerful in our lives to cause them to wonder what it is that we possess? 
Are we not shamed that this world sees us not as a threat, but merely as a nuisance? May we, the barren in Israel, cry out in supplication. May we echo the demand of Rachel unto our bridegroom. Give me children or I die. The vow of the barren. I want to look very specifically at one of these stories, and it's the story of Hannah. Hannah is the wife of Elkanah. So Elkanah, we don't know much about him. He seems to be a nice man. We don't know much about him. We know more about Hannah because we witness her life and her struggle. She's barren. She has a competitor for the affections of Elkanah, and her name is Peninnah. It's very interesting because Hannah means grace, and Peninnah means jewel. Jewel is very similar to what we would say is the natural. Okay, in other words, currency or a jewel is something that's tradable. It's earthly commerce. Okay, it's a commodity in the earthly realm. So it has substance and value down here. Grace is something that is transactable with heaven. It gains the treasures of heaven. And so Elkanah has two wives, Jewel and Grace. And what's funny is Peninnah, I don't know if this was funny to Hannah, but Peninnah is fruitful. She has all sorts of children. And Hannah, who it seems that Elkanah prefers, which is always terrible to say, I mean, the Bible's very blunt about things like that, but it seems that Elkanah prefers Grace, but she cannot bear fruit. She cannot bear children. You have two sides to your being, flesh, spirit. One is born after the natural man. And if you, as a Christian, attempt to bear fruit for your bridegroom out of the flesh, you will be very fruitful. It's really amazing. If you labor after the flesh for your bridegroom, you will produce fruit. It's just not fruit that pleases him. It's the fruit of the flesh. It's the fruit of self-effort. Do you remember Abraham and Sarah? They, they were promised a child. And Sarah had a a bright idea. Why don't you sleep with Hagar, my handmaid, and then we'll have a descendant for you. That's self-effort. That's the fruit of the flesh. It's known as Ishmael. You know what Ishmael was described as? A wild donkey of a man. Mm -hmm. That's our fruit, isn't it? That's the fruit that we give rise to. But then we look over at Hannah, and with the grace of God at work in our lives, we're like, you're not producing anything. And we, we love God. We love the grace of God. We love the mercies. We love the work of the cross. But come on. Come on. I can't lean on you to produce my, my descendants here. If I'm going to mean anything in this world, I need to turn to Penina. And God says, no more Penina. Hannah, it's by my grace that you were saved. It's by my grace. This is the labor of heaven. But there's a problem And that she is shut up. Her womb is closed. The vow of the barren. 1 Samuel 1. Now there was a certain man, and his name was Elkanah. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children. It's an understatement. But Hannah had no children. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversaries also provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. It's interesting because Peninnah is considered Hannah's adversary. Remember the flesh and the spirit? They're at enmity, one with the other. Very similar, Hannah and Peninnah. For to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as she did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, 
So she provoked her. Therefore she wept, Hannah wept, and did not eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Listen to Elkanah's question. Am I not better to thee than ten sons? So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow. This is going to be very important as we move forward. Hannah vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but wilt give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. It's a Nazarite. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Wherefore, it came to pass, when the time was come, about after Hannah had conceived, that she bare a son, and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. Am I not better than ten sons? Imagine Jesus coming to you and saying, Why? Why weep? Why do you not eat? Because, dear bridegroom, If your children do not, or your wife, the bride, does not bear fruit in your image to show forth unto this world who you are, then your name will not be made great in this generation. You are so precious to me, precious bridegroom. But I must bear you fruit. I must carry on the lineage of your name. Please, may I not be shut up. May my womb be opened to bear forth the realities of your nature, of your power, of your word in my generation. Awake, awake, O arm of the Lord, and give me fruit of the womb. Please. She bear a son. By the way, that's the answer. When you are barren, it's an opportunity. It's like the launch pad for your vow to be vowed unto your God. He is training you to be mighty, to produce mighty things in and through your spiritual womb. This is a blessing, not a curse. We live in a generation that has set us up to demonstrate the power of God at a greater level than maybe any other generation prior. Because the roof is thick, it is hard to get to the feet of Jesus and it's hard to bring people there. So this is the hour for us, like Hannah, to vow the vow and to say, God, whatever comes forth out of this womb, I consecrate it unto you for your glory, honor, and praise. We have another picture of this. We're going to build on this. We're just laying a foundation. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. Jacob has an arch nemesis known as Esau his brother, who he's tried to trick out of the birthright. And he's after something. He's after a blessing. But for whatever reason, he can't seem to access it. His life is still miserable. He's barren spiritually. He has substance at a certain level, like many of us, but he's barren spiritually. And he comes to a place. He's in the, his most darkest hour. This is where it's typically called by St. John of the Cross, the dark night of the soul. Because the next day he needs to face Esau, his arch nemesis, but he doesn't have the strength to overcome it. He has women and children and cattle. And Esau has armed men. (laughs) It's a done deal. That's like you dealing with your flesh. Armed men 
and you have some women, children, and cattle to fight the flesh with. You don't have what you need. But that night, he grabs a hold of what he needs. And when he finds it, he will not let go of it. Do you know what you need? You see, if you don't realize that your women, children, and cattle can't overcome the obstacles that you face in your life, they cannot overcome your barrenness. If you don't realize that, you will not cry out, give me children or I die. But Jacob has been brought to his end, to the dark night of his soul, to recognize he does not have what it takes to face Esau in the morning. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. Until the sun rises, do not let go. And he, he, Jacob said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he, God, said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he, God, said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. This is an important thing, because this name, Israel, comes out of it. Now, the Ellerslie students know that I just look for opportunities to be able to say the, uh, uh, the Hebrew version of this word. Okay, this is how you pronounce it, and I've been complimented on my Hebrew. Uh, that's actually not true. Uh, okay, listen to this. This is, this is great. Yisrael. See, I might be the only one impressed with that, but that was really good. Okay, I'll do it one more time for you. Yisrael. Some of you are just thinking, if I could just sound like that. Uh, this, this, is the, this is the name that God gives Jacob. Why? Because Jacob has seen his need. And then he has seen his answer in Jesus Christ, in God Almighty, in Jehovah. And he grabs a hold of him. And even when God says, even though I had to crop it out to make this faster, let me go. I can't. You are the only source of rescue. There is only one salvation for me and you have it. You are my savior and I will not let go until I get the blessing out of you. He says, no more will you be called Jacob. You will now gain the name Israel. This is what it means, by the way. Contender, soldier of God, the prevailing power of God, the power of God unto victory. Do you have that name? You know the way that you become spiritual Israel is by recognizing your need. You must know that you are empty and impotent to be able to accomplish that which God has commissioned you to accomplish. You can't do it. The flesh awaits to prove that in the morning. You can't fight him. He has armed forces with him. You have nothing. The secret to Christianity is grabbing a hold of your God and saying, you're the one that has it, and I cannot find it anywhere else. No longer will you be called Jacob, deceiver, supplanter, heel grabber. But now, you are the one that contended with God and has overcome. You're the one that has seen that I was your answer and you would not let go until you got every bit of me. That's my people, says God. Those are the ones that will bear my name. They're the contenders. They're the soldiers of God. They're the ones with the growl in their soul. They know where to get it. And they do not stop and they do not tire in their pursuit of it. William Booth is quoted as saying, 
you must pray with your might. That does not mean saying your prayers or sitting gazing about in church or chapel with eyes wide open while someone else says them for you. It means fervent, effectual, untiring wrestling with God. It means that grappling with omnipotence, that clinging to him, following him about, so to speak, day and night. As the widow did to the unjust judge with agonizing pleadings and arguments and entreaties until answer comes and the end is gained. This kind of prayer, be sure, the devil and the world and your own indolent, unbelieving nature will oppose. They will pour water on this flame. They will ply you with suggestions and difficulties. They will ask you how you can expect that the plans and purposes and feelings of God can be altered by your prayers. They will talk about impossibilities and predict failures. But if you mean to succeed... You must shut your ears and eyes to all but what God has said and hold him to his word. And you cannot do this in any sleepy mood. You cannot be a prevailing Israel unless you wrestle as Jacob wrestled, regardless of time and aught else, save obtaining the blessings sought. That is, you must pray with your might. Church of Jesus Christ, it's time not just to pray, but to pray with our might to exert ourselves, to say there is only one way through this tile ceiling and we will not relent until every tile is removed. That is our vow. And when we vow a vow, we shall bear a son if we fulfill our vow. And we walk this through until the end, until the breaking of the day. So what is prayer? Let's look at Jesus' answer to that. This is at least one portion of his answer, which I think is a very telling portion. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus died on that cross, he accomplished something. And he said as much, it is finished, it is accomplished, it is done. And we look around and we're like, you know what? Is that all you did? Because it seems that Satan is still ruling down here. What did he actually accomplish? Supposedly he defeated all the powers of earth and hell. What's going on here? What he accomplished is accomplished in heaven. The saints of God's requirement is to believe in what he's accomplished, to take our grappling hook and throw it up and grab a hold of the promises, obtain them and pull them to this earth. And that's prayer. Prayer is tireless. It does not back down. And it knows that the only way to get the purchase of the cross to this earth in the natural realm is we must pull it through the roof. There is a roof, it's called a veil, that separates this world from the other. And for whatever reason, over America, it's thick. But we, as the church of Jesus Christ, with simple, childlike faith, can see what is in heaven's storehouse. We can see it. Throw up our grappling hook and begin to pull it down. How long do you pull? How many yanks on that rope should you make? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven? Would that be sufficient? What if it doesn't come? Well, God doesn't want it to come. If God promises it, he means it to come. What he's asking of us is to pull in prayer and to pull in prayer until it arrives. The doctrine of answered prayer. God has promised and he cannot lie. Ask and it shall be given you. And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer believing ye shall receive. But I know that even now whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. 
And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. So obviously, I think, just with that quick overview, you begin to realize that Jesus wants us to know something. And that is that God answers prayer. What we can testify as modern-day Christians is God sometimes, if he's in a good mood, answers prayer. Big difference between the two. We need to have the utter confidence that the Word of God is telling the truth. And when we pray in accordance with the Word of God, in accordance with the recipe that God has divined for prayer, which I will share with you, without question, every single time, God will answer prayer. Without exception. I don't want to hear your story of exception. I know what my God has said. And my God cannot lie. So you need to correct your experience and come into alignment with the living God who has said what he said and he didn't stutter. We have issues that prohibit us from seeing our prayers answered, which I'm going to walk through here. And unfortunately, we specialize in these six things in American Christianity. And as a result, we impugn God as not being accurate with his word. When in actuality, we are not accurate with his word. We are not living as he has clearly commanded us to live. And if we fall into alignment with his word, he isn't just bound to answer our prayers, legally bound to answer our prayers, but he delights to. This is his good pleasure. He wants to give to his saints everything that they would need for life and godliness. Everything. He ever lives to make intercession for us and it promises that he will save us to the uttermost. Catch that word. If you want to do a good study on a Greek word, uttermost saves us to the uttermost degree. Anything in our lives that we could be rescued through and gained victory in, he wants to accomplish it. That's the God we serve, by the way. I know he's been misrepresented today. And we've come up with elaborate justifications for why he seems impotent and why his arm seems asleep. We are the ones asleep. Let's make sure we understand what's really happening. Our God does not slumber. He's very much awake. But because of the lack of a praying church, his right arm is not able to move on our behalf. The six things that hinder prayers. If your prayers are born of the flesh, they will not be answered. And you can say, but he says, ask whatsoever. Yeah, and he also clarifies. One of the amazing things about Scripture, in fact, one of my favorite things about Scripture, is that if you take one Scripture reference and just sort of run with it, you oftentimes misunderstand what it's saying. Every Scripture has a context. As the famous statement goes, every word within its sentence, every sentence within its paragraph, every paragraph within its chapter, every chapter within its book, and every book within the 66. You, do never, you never take one thing and lift it out and start running with it. 
Jesus makes it very clear, and he doesn't stutter, and any child could understand it. Ask whatsoever you will, and it will be given to you. Now, there's a parallel that's being drawn between the Old Testament and the New here. You see, in the Old Testament, there was something known as the promised land. In the New Testament, Peter calls it the exceeding great and precious promises of God. Both you could call lands of promise. In the Old Testament, there's a clear message that says, first of all, it defines the land of promise. and says, here it is. You know, you cross over the River Jordan into this great land, but then it goes to the Great Sea, and you have the River Euphrates over here. It literally gives a boundary to this territory known as Israel, the land of Canaan. It says, this is the land of promise, and wheresoever your foot shall tread within this territory, it's yours. In the New Testament, same thing. God gives us exceeding great and precious promises. And they're all born of his nature and his spirit, what he wants to accomplish in our lives. He says, here they are. Wherever you step in this territory, believing, you will get it. We are traipsing around in Japan, in northern Russia, Sweden. And we're like, hey, God, I'm asking. You're not given. Get into the land of promise. And you start asking from where the spirit of God is asking. The spirit of God prays through you in accordance with the word of God. If it's born of the flesh, it's born of you, your whims, your notions, you want the Lamborghini, God's saying, "Mm -mm, you're missing the whole point, buddy. You ask and you receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. So when you take the ask whatsoever promises of Jesus, you need to remember that there is more scripture to be taken into that context to harmonize, to understand how that is answered. He does say, ask whatsoever. But just like he said to the Hebrews, wheresoever your foot shall tread. Well, does that mean wheresoever or wheresoever in the promise? Wheresoever in the promise. Second reason that our prayers are hindered is because they're errant. In other words, they miss the mark. God has a target for our prayers. Prayers. It's not in alignment with God's nature, will, and purpose on this earth. He has, he has something he's trying to accomplish in and through you. And if you're a Christian, you're his vehicle to accomplish that. Yet, we're still living for self. And so we're trying to pray and accomplish something over here. It's like, God, if you could help me win the lottery, then, and we have all, you know, we'll give him 10%. Have you ever tried that prayer? You win the few million, and then you'll tithe 10% to God. Woohoo! Who's getting the better end of that deal? Not in alignment with God's nature, will, and purpose on earth. And this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything, listen to this, according to his will, he hears us. So we need to be in alignment with his purpose. It's what he's doing. And we do that when we make, allow our prayers to be born of him. God, what's on your heart for me to be praying? You ask that before you start praying, and suddenly your prayers are good prayers. Third reason our prayers are hindered is because we waver and we are unsure of his ability to hear them or his desire to answer them. If you do not pray with faith, if you do not pray with confidence that our God is a prayer-answering God, and this is just what he does, he's bound, he's promised, and he cannot lie, then your prayers will be hindered. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. 
Here's the fourth reason. We're living in disobedience and impurity. You know, when these things matter, in other words, to your prayer life, you can quote these prayers about how God answers everything, you know, and will give you whatever you ask. But if your life is cattywampus with his, you are not in alignment. It doesn't work. And if you're living in disobedience and impurity, your prayers will be hindered. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. So, if we are keeping his commandments and doing things that are pleasing in his sight, whatsoever we ask, we shall be given. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Why? Your hands are full of blood. So if your hands are full of blood... If you have guilt upon your soul that is unrepented of, and you are not living the way God has commissioned you to live, there will be an impairment to your praying. Five, you lack heavenly honor. You are not behaving according to the pattern as set in heaven. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them, which means your wives, according to the knowledge, and according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. And as being heirs together of the grace of life, why? That your prayers be not hindered. In other words, your prayers are hindered if you are not living in the right manner with those around you, starting with your spouse in this case. So if we are not showing honor and deference and respect and love to those around us, do you know there's an impairment and an impediment in our praying? And finally, six, it's for lack of abiding. Because in John 15, he says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. So, you can look at this a different way and say, If you don't abide in him, and his words don't abide in you, you shall ask what you will, but it shall not be done unto you. There are hindrances to our our prayer life. It doesn't mean you need to be fearful of these hindrances. You need to allow God to prick us. Convict us, correct us, so that we do not have this weight that is besetting us in our praying. The recipe for the impossible for God not to answer prayer. There it is. Ingredient number one, praying with God prayers. Ingredient number two, praying with faith. Ingredient number three, praying with persistence. Now, you might not understand fully what those mean, but if you do these three things and you are in alignment with God, it is impossible for God not to answer your prayers. It's an incredible thought. Ingredient number one, praying God prayers. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. God is praying. I know that seems strange. He ever lives to make intercession for us, it says of Jesus Christ. God has a burden on his heart. You know that he knows everything that's going on in every soul here on earth? Simultaneously, he's acquainted with it. He's acquainted with the griefs and the sorrows and the the joys. He knows everything that's going on in every single one of you. He knows the trajectory of your life. He knows what's about to come into your life. He knows every little detail. And he knows what must be prayed on planet earth to accomplish, even though the enemy is meaning evil in each of our lives, to turn that constantly unto a good. And that's what prayer accomplishes. Prayer is always at work to rescue and to save, to carry and bear up the paraplegics and bring them to the feet of Jesus. 
But we must be sensitive to what God is doing. Where's he praying? What's he wanting to pray? Do we know? When we come into a prayer time, you know what most of us do? We try and brainstorm what we should pray. How many of us have ever just come before God and said, God, what do you want me to pray? You know that he'll show you? He'll give you weights. A lot of people call them burdens. They feel something. They just care about something, and it's inexplicable. Why do I care so much? Pray. That's why. God wants you to be praying. God moves mountains. He changes history. He alters the course of nations in and through praying saints. But it's because we are in agreement with what he is praying on earth. When you pray God prayers, they're guaranteed to be answered. Because they're God-inspired. They're God-derived. That's where they came from. They came from his heart, his mind. He's saying, this must happen on earth. You say, I agree. And you start praying. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Ingredient number two, praying with faith. Faith has been run through the mud in our day and age, and so most of us have a tough time even knowing what it is. If there's that tile roof between us and the heavenly realms, faith sees through the tile. And it sees the realities of who Jesus is. It sees the purchase of the cross. It is able to behold it and say, that's real. And that's for today. That's what God wants to accomplish. It's assuredness. It's confidence. It's the eyes of the soul able to witness the realities of heaven. And it's able to throw up the grappling hook and pull with full assurance that God is a prayer-answering God, and that he delights to give to his children that which he promised. We need to pray with faith. And all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Ingredient number three, and this is the one I'm going to unpack for us. Praying with persistence. There's all sorts of terms for this throughout Christian history. Importunity is one of the great words. It's not even in uh, the online dictionary where you're typing. I'm always typing it into something I'm writing, and it always puts a red line under it, and so I right-click on it going, what in the way? I spelled that correctly. And it doesn't even give me an option. It's a good word. It's been completely lost, supposedly. I'm going to need to correct that dictionary. Praying with persistence. You will not let go. No matter what happens, you hold on until the breaking of day. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through six illustrations of this in Scripture. So for those of you that, you know, are like, well, I don't want to presume upon God. You see, if God doesn't answer the first time I pray, I'm just going to assume that he doesn't want to answer. Was it a God prayer? If it's a God prayer, you do not stop wrestling for it until it arrives. The illustration I've used for many years is the concept of God saying, Eric, I have put a treasure chest of jewels into the ground. It's right beneath your feet. Here's a shovel. What would you do if there's a treasure chest of jewels and a shovel has been handed to you? What would be the wise thing to do? Dig. Now, imagine that I get the shovel and I start digging. And I take a couple you know, shovelfuls and I don't see anything. Well, you know what? I guess God didn't intend me to find the treasure chest. And so we set down our shovel, and someone comes by and goes, why'd you set down the shovel? Didn't God give you that shovel? Yeah, but, you know, I, look at I, I shoveled out two scoopfuls. Nothing. 
You know that we have entire groups of people getting together to commiserate about their two to four shovelful deep holes in their Christian life and they never found the faithfulness of God? Come on! Buck up! Pick up the shovel and start digging! If God promised and he cannot lie, it's down there! You know what my entire spiritual life seems to be? Continuing to dig and everyone around me looking at me like I'm wacko. What are you doing? And my head gets beneath the surface and you see this you know, dirt that's coming out of the hole. It's like, what are you doing? And they actually get uncomfortable with me doing it because they set down their shovel. What are you doing down there? Could you get out of your hole? Stop shoveling. God doesn't want you shoveling. I am not going to stop until I find it. God promised and he cannot lie. And so, you know, dirt flying out of the hole. And then one day, guess what happens? And it always happens. Kink, kink. Found something. It's real. And it is. It's real. You know what the first thing I hear is? Well, you're the exception. Am I the exception? Are you the exception when you find Jesus Christ? Oh, no. It's a promise. And it's a promise that is good for anyone who will believe. Anyone who will believe. Effectual, fervent praying. So we're going to go through this. This is the six illustrations in Scripture, the six juiciest ones, because there's, there's actually a lot of illustration of this. Effectual, fervent praying. First of all, I'm going to give the Scripture for this in James 5. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The context for this is very important because it describes in James 5, which by the way is the first scripture I was talking about, if any man is sick, let him come unto the elders and they will pray over him and anoint him with oil in the prayer in in the name of Jesus Christ and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Well, right below that it says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then it refers to something a little shocking. It refers to an Old Testament character named Elijah. The pattern for effectual fervent prayer is given of Elijah when he prayed for rain to return to Israel after three and a half years of drought. 1 Kings 18, Elijah went up to the top of Carmel and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. You see, it hasn't rained in Israel for three and a half years. Israel is desolate because of this. You know why it hasn't rained for three and a half years? Because Elijah, three and a half years prior, prayed that it wouldn't rain in Israel. Now, James, just in case you're, you're going to start being super impressed with Elijah and saying, he's a god. You know that James goes out of his way to say, no, no, he's just like you. He's a man. Okay, so don't think this is anything extraordinary. This is simply faith. This is what it means to pray without ceasing. This is what effectual, fervent praying of a righteous man looks like. So, right before this scene, Elijah says to King Ahab, he says, I hear the sound of an abundance of rain. No rain in the sky, but he says he hears it. You see, what that is is faith. He sees through the tile roof and he sees rain coming. It's like he sees storm clouds up there, but they're not here in the natural So he has a job to do, and that is he needs to grab a hold of that promise with a grappling hook and pull it into the natural realm. And so he puts his head between his knees, and he prays. His servant is here, and he says, go check to see if the storm clouds have arrived. The guy comes back, and he says, there is nothing. Shovel full of dirt, scooped it out, nothing. Should we give up? He heard the sound of an abundance of rain. It's a God prayer. 
threw his grappling hook up, grabbed a hold of it. Should he give up? I mean, this is a lot that he's asking for. Maybe God wants it to stay a drought in Israel. I mean, he prayed. He tried. Let's give in. Come on. And he said, go again. Now, there should be a comma here. There should be quotes around go again. Go again seven times. See, what happened is Elijah went back down into prayer position, came back up and said, go check. And his servant came back. He said, there's nothing. Went down and he prayed. He sent him back. Came back. There's nothing. Prayed. Go again. Came back. There's nothing. Prayed. Sent him. Come back. There's nothing. Seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, there arises a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And he said, Go up and say unto Ahab, prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. Uh, Elijah, there's only a cloud the size of a man's hand. You see, Elijah just needed to see the natural breakthrough. He needed to get the hole in the tile roof. And once the hole was made, in comes the storm. Get thee up and go tell Ahab to get on his chariot before the rain stop him. This is an extraordinary picture. He would not let go until that cloud formed. And then when the cloud formed, he knew his praying was done. Go up and say unto Ahab, prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heavens were black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. Wrestling until the breaking of day. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And the man said, let me go, for the day breaks. And Jacob said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. Always to pray and not to faint. And Jesus spoke a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, there was a city, in it there was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man, and there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth. That's faith. What the widow is doing is described by Jesus in this context as faith. It's persistence. It is not letting go. It seems like badgering. It seems like presumption. Hey, I need this God. But if it's in alignment with a God prayer, if this is the burden of God upon you, God says, ask and don't stop asking. Seek and don't stop seeking. Knock and don't stop knocking. Importunity. There's our word. And he said unto them, which of you shall have a friend and shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine in his journey has come to me and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, trouble me not. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. And I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him because he is my friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. In other words, and the guy's like, well, you shut up. Is that the way your prayer life looks? 
You will not let go. You will keep knocking. There is only one that has the answer. There is only one that can give you what you need. There is only one that can heal the paraplegic that you are carrying. There is only one. So do you give up if he doesn't get up and rise up and answer the door after the first few knocks? And because of your importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. And I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks receives, and him that seeks finds. And to him that knocks, it shall be opened. That's a promise. And our God cannot lie. Unwavering pursuit. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. Listen to this line. But he answered her not a word. That's a little awkward. You're talking to God, and there's really no response. So someone comes up and says, are you going to continue asking? No, he obviously isn't very interested. Wait a minute. Is there anyone else that can heal your daughter? Is there anyone else that can take care of her need? Is there? There's only one, and that's Jesus. Even if it appears that he's answering not a word, what do you do? And his disciples came and besought him, saying, send her away. For she cries after us. But he answered and said, this is, this is what he says. I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Because she's a foreigner. Then she came and worshipped him. Saying, Lord help me. Okay, now first of all he doesn't answer her. And then he says, you know what, I haven't actually come for you. I came for the lost sheep of Israel. And she bows down and worships him. Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meat to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Um, I think she just got called a dog. If there's ever a reason to give up your praying, this story would indicate it. And God's saying, Do you get my point, people? I don't want to answer your prayers. Did you remember the Syrophoenician woman? But that's not the end of the story. You see, there is something that is taking place here. And in Scripture, it's called the testing of faith. And she said, truth, Lord, listen to her reasoning. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou will. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. You see, most of you in here gave up already. Right in the very beginning of this story, you threw up your hands and say, see, that just proves that God doesn't want to answer that. And we're always praying, God, if it's your will, what if we know it's his will? You know how many things in scripture are very clear that it's his will? Why else would he say it? This is what I want to accomplish in you, through you, and in this earth. Pray until it happens. God has an agenda. We can know his agenda. It's called his word. And then when we pray in accordance with his word, in faith, and we do not let go. It is the impossible for God not to answer prayer. UK. This is an Annie Weshy word. She really likes uh, the UK. And so this is her Greek word. 
the Greek word translated means the vow of consecration. This word is used three times in the New Testament. And the time in which it's used that will shock many of us is in James 5. Listen to this. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. That first word for pray is the normal word that is used all throughout the New Testament for pray. It's just a normal word and that's it. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. However, when it says, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick, you know what it is? It's a different word. The word is uke. It's the vow of consecration. It's a vow. Remember going back to Hannah? It says she vowed a vow and she bore a son. There's a direct parallel here. And the prayer, the UK of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. This is the context for this line. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heaven gave rain. And the earth brought forth her fruit. Well, you're an expert on this scene now. We've gone back to 1 Kings and we fleshed this out. The UK of faith. The vow of faith. Will save the sick. What is this? Because we already, our, our understanding is it's the prayer of faith. Well, it is a prayer, but it's a prayer at a whole nother level of givenness. You see, if you're in a prayer chain, I don't know if you've ever been in a prayer chain, you, you get these calls, and it goes around, you get a call, someone else gets a call, and you pray. And you have committed to pray for people if you get the call. However, your prayer is not necessarily a UK prayer. It's not a vow of consecration. It's just a prayer. And so you kneel down with your family, maybe, okay, we need to pray for uh, Jim. Jim's in a difficult straits. And so all of you pray for Jim. And guess what? You're released from the prayer the moment you're done praying. Your commitment was to pray when asked. This is different. This is a givenness unto prayer until the answer comes. There's a difference. The UK of faith is a vow to continue until it happens. And that's the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. UK, it's a sacred vow of givenness, the immovable position, the unbreakable resolve, and thusly, the unstoppable prayer. Who doesn't want to be praying the unstoppable prayer? What if all of us begin to learn how to pray the unstoppable prayer? Well, the church becomes unstoppable. And the world turns upside down. You see, if we understand what we're talking about today, tile roofs are no more. And there is an open heaven. There is an open heaven just like Jacob saw when he knelt down at Bethel and laid down at Bethel. And the heavens were opened. That's what we're missing. We have a tile roof over our head in America today. But are we willing to form the bond of covenant with our God and vow the vow of consecration to say not until the tiles are removed and the roof is broken up, will we stop? Listen to Samuel Chadwick. I have a whole bunch of great quotes from yesteryear here. These are fantastic. 
There is no power like that of prevailing prayer, of Abraham pleading for Sodom, Jacob wrestling in the stillness of the night, Moses standing in the breach, Hannah intoxicated with sorrow, David heartbroken with remorse and grief, Jesus in sweat of blood. Such prayers prevail. It turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings power. It brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. E.M. Bounds. He's talking actually here about the word UK in the Greek. So this is actually the context that he's referring to. Prayer in its highest form of faith is that prayer which carries the whole man as a sacrificial offering. Thus devoting the whole man himself and his all to God in a definite, intelligent vow, never to be broken, in a quenchless and impassioned desire for heaven. Charles Spurgeon, Ben uh, Zorns dug this one up uh, this past week, so it got thrown into this message. Good job, Ben. Success is certain when the Lord has promised it. Although you may have pleaded month after month without evidence of answer, it is not possible that the Lord should be deaf when his people are earnest in a matter which concerns his glory. The prophet on the top of Carmel continued to wrestle with God and never for a moment gave way to a fear that he should be non-suited in Jehovah's courts. Six times the servant returned, but on each occasion no word was spoken, but go again! We must not dream of unbelief, but hold to our faith even to 70 times 7. Faith sends expectant hope to look from Carmel's brow, and if nothing is beheld, she sends again and again. So far from being crushed by repeated disappointment, faith is animated to plead more fervently with her God. She is humbled, not, but not abashed. Her groans are deeper and her signs more vehement, but she never relaxes her hold or stays her hand. It would be more agreeable to flesh and blood to have a speedy answer, but believing souls have learned to be submissive and to find it good to wait for as well as upon the Lord. Delayed answers often set the heart searching itself and so lead to contrition and spiritual reformation. Deadly blows are thus struck at our corruption, and the chambers of imagery are cleansed. The great danger is lest men should faint and miss the blessing. Reader, do not fall into that sin, but continue in prayer and watching. At last the little cloud was seen, the sure forerunner of torrents of rain. And even so with you, the token for good shall surely be given, and you shall rise as a prevailing prince to enjoy the mercy you have sought." Elijah was a man of like passions with us. His power with God did not lie in his own merits. If his believing prayer availed so much, why not ours? Plead the precious blood with unceasing importunity, and it shall be with you according to your desire. Ian Bounds. He prays not at all who does not press his plea. Our praying needs to be pressed and pursued with an energy that never tires, a persistency which will not be denied, and a courage that never fails. I hope there's at least a little spark of inspiration here. We have a job to do. We are the church of God. We are the vehicle through which God intends to bear up the paraplegics and break through the roof. We aren't the healers. We aren't the saviors. But we have a role in this great drama. And it's to believe that at Jesus' feet is the answer. What must we do to get to Jesus' feet? We must see that roof broken up. So we pray, and we pray, and we pray, and we knock, and we knock, and we knock, and we pull, and we pull, and we pull, and we shovel, and we shovel, and we shovel. 
until we reach Jesus in all his fullness, grandeur, and glory. Awake, awake, O arm of the Lord, with every shovelful, awake, awake, O arm of the Lord. Please, hear our pleas. We must have life again in Israel. John Knox, may this be an inspiration to us. O Lord, give me Scotland or I die. Where was he inspired for that quote? This is the prayer of the humble servants of God throughout the ages. You see, John Knox was given a burden for Scotland. Do you have a burden? If you don't have a burden, go to God and let him give you a burden. It's a scary thing because you don't quite know what to do with a burden when you get it because a burden is is like Gethsemane. Remember what Jesus had in the Garden of Gethsemane? A burden. I, I don't know if I want that. You have to have it. A burden is what leads you. It's what guides you. It it causes your praying to be effectual because you must have that burden relieved. And if your burden is that the church of Jesus Christ must once again awaken, then you cannot stop until that burden is relieved. So here's my proposal of the burden that we get. Give us the stuff of old or we die. The church at Ellerslie. May that be the quote in history And they say, we don't know who they were, but we know that they had a prayer. And they would not let go until that roof was broken up. Exceedingly, abundantly above. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding, abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. How big is your God? Do you have a diddly squat God? Or do you have the God of the Bible? You know what? Here's my encouragement. Trade in your diddly squat God for the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is able to exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Okay? So think of the greatest, most grand thought of what your God can do. And he can go beyond that. Exceedingly abundantly beyond that. Our God is not small. Our God, even the words big, extraordinary, massive, are pitiful. They do not even come close to describing the grandeur that he is. Let us fall flat on our faces before this God and say, the fact that you would condescend to even use me in this process is extraordinary. We have paraplegics all around us. We might be some of them. God, make us strong so that we can be used to break up roofs as opposed to just be the ones that need to get through the roof and drop to his feet. May we, we be the ones that are helping people get to his feet. We need both, by the way. If you still haven't gotten to the feet of Jesus, well, that's what we're here for. We're here to help you get there. And if you have gotten to Jesus, you have a job to do. And if you haven't yet learned how to remove roof tiles, this is Christianity. And we have a serious amount of them in our age and generation which is what makes it so fun. Could you imagine if we didn't have any conflict? If it was just easy? If there was no drama? If there was no enemy? I love the adventure that we have. We have obstacles. They want us dead. This is fun. We must maintain the attitude of confidence that greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. 
We are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. Though we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. I know that doesn't sound very fun to be counted as sheep for the slaughter. Hey, but don't, rem- don't forget, we are more than conquerors. That's the next line. That's the truth. And I like the truth. He's very lovable. He's worthy of our adoration and our worship. He's worthy of us plying ourselves in believing prayer until that roof is broken up. He is worthy. Let's pray. Precious King of Kings. Teach your church to pray. Give us the spirit of prayer. May we be burdened with your prayers. And may we pray those prayers with faith and persistence. And may we see the small cloud, the size of the man's hand, form once again in this generation. And may there be a mighty rain. Please, we are barren. Give us children or we die. Give us the stuff of old or the church will shrivel up in this generation and die. Please, Lord Jesus, demonstrate the power of your right hand once again in this generation. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.